Welcome to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of the most iconic sites in America, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Aaron Kronk here, along with Corey Hockaday and Crystal. Hello. Hello. How are you today, Aaron? Good to see you guys. Yeah, I know we can see one another. Our audience yeah. can't see us, which works out well because We're I didn't brush my hair. Not in the same room, in case anyone was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Across well, I do have, uh, actually, I've had a couple cups of coffee this morning, and I was mm. just kind of thinking to myself, what a wonderful God-given blessing that <laughs> God we have bless coffee. God the first person who added water to the coffee bean. God bless mm. that person. Right. And then added milk because... <gasps> Well, and I've heard the story, I guess, a little bit. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but uh, the very first coffee bean that was discovered was from a little sheep herder over in Ethiopia. And uh, his, uh, the sheep herder's sheep had been nibbling at some berries and had kind of getting a little frisky. I think it was the caffeine. So he, it was uh, that, that point of discovery was the first coffee bean. I don't know if that's truthful or not. I like that it would be a sheep. There's some kind of metaphor with like Jesus being the good shepherd and leading his sheep to the pasture of the coffee bean. (laughs) There's something there. I don't know. We need to, I need to dig into that one. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, But at any rate, coffee is a wonderful thing. And uh, I just, uh, yeah, nothing like a good cup of coffee on a cold day. Well, this first portion is the coffee corner and colonial colloquialisms, which I just love to say. If you don't really want to say that, you can just say C to the fourth. And uh, you guys, this morning, I just, I just thought we'd maybe talk a little bit about what, a, what an actual colloquialism is. Uh, can you guys define that? No. no. It has way too many way too many letters in that word. Yeah. Come on, you were homeschooled, Krista. You're letting me know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But Aaron, why don't you tell us? I say it a million times. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it is fun to say, and I did look it yes. up uh, for the benefit of our listening audience uh, and probably ours since mm-hmm. we're using it. Um, colloquialism is defined as a word, a phrase, or expression characteristic of ordinary or familiar conversation rather than formal speech or writing. So an example is like long johns. Uh, you know, I talk, I wear long johns in the wintertime. time. just warm, you know, long underwear, uh, with long <laughs> legs. Uh, another one's no brainer. You know, if you have a no brainer, what does that mean? Anything that requires a little thought. Um, and another one I found uh, kind of interesting, can of worms. You open up a can of worms, uh, a source of unpredictable trouble and complexity. I like that. Well, and I like that one word, the colloquialisms, can mean an entire sentence. Like it really takes the effort out to be like, I, now what I'm about to say is going to be what this is. It's just like a single word. I mean, really, words are amazing. Yeah. Mm. So what's the good word today, Aaron? What is the colonial colloquialism that we're going to learn? Well, the colonial colloquialism is the whole nine yards, to go the whole nine yards. And this was kind of fun. Uh, We've all been to Colonial Williamsburg, and it's a wonderful place to visit. 
and uh, anybody who's ever been there knows that uh, there's lots of costumed interpreters and both men and women the women are all in these fine dresses and all decked out that look incredible uh, well to go the whole nine yards believe it or not this colloquialism came uh, during that period of time and it was cloth that was shipped to the colonies and it was packaged in bolts. Uh, a bolt is you just wrap the fabric around this uh, kind of a spindle type thing uh, and they would ship it like that and uh, the bolts contain nine yards of fabric. And when uh, the dressmaker got an order for making a dress from one of the ladies, um, Oftentimes they would request, based upon what they could afford, uh, for the dressmaker to use all of the fabric on a bolt or the whole nine yards. What? So if you, yeah. So if no, you could afford, that's amazing. Yeah, if you could afford, if you had a little bit more money and you wanted a little fancier dress, you could uh, you could go the whole nine yards. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. Well, and mm -hmm. think of how expensive that would be. You know, if you've been to Williamsburg. And you know, you know, you've learned or, you know, even just imagine today, that would be so much money for one of those gowns, especially at a time where, you know, we're switching out our clothes every day. Like I wear, you know, hopefully a different shirt every day. But, you know, back in those times, people didn't have a whole lot of, you know, variety within their wardrobe because it would cost a lot of money. So if you were going in and getting the whole nine yards, oof, that would be quite a pretty penny. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the types of fabrics, like right. so yes. everything was imported, so yep. real fancy. Yeah. And then you might be thinking to yourself, how would you display so much fabric in one single garment? Right. Ooh. Then they would have those like hip things, you know, where it would just yeah. like out the sides. And I mean, some people were reportedly had to walk sideways through the door because their fake hips <laughs> were so large. <laughs> Oh yeah, gosh. that's awesome. What we do for fashion. I know. And going well, and the it. guys, I think the guys uh, could get on, in on it too because mm -hmm. that same thing applied to them. If you were rich enough to buy the whole suit that took nine yards, mm -hmm. uh, you could do that. But uh, a lesser suit might not have uh, a matching vest or pants. Wow. Hmm. I never thought of that part. Wow. Or breeches. Breeches. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I love, that's a fantastic one. Uh, I love one. clothes metaphors, yes. Yeah, and I stopped wearing breeches a long time ago, so I just <laughs> won't go there anymore. <laughs> I don't even think I know how to define what a breech is. <laughs> a breech is. <laughs> I think that may be turned into britches, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Awesome, you guys. In today's Behind the Constitution portion, uh, this is when we dig into the who's, what's, where's, why's, and wherefore's of our nation's founding document, the Constitution. Well, the founding fathers who wrote uh, and signed the Constitution, uh, you guys, I think, really thought of themselves or perceived themselves as men of faith mm -hmm. and, and used what they learned from a lifetime of reading and studying God's word to help form the new nation's law uh, and system of government. So it's, it's not that we established a Christian country, a Christian nation, but without Christian values and even, I would dare say, character, uh, we would never have established this kind of country that we have lived in and currently live in. Uh, we were shaped by the Bible. Well, outside the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, where the preamble of the Constitution is displayed 
um, on the building, uh, the, the preamble to the Constitution really reflects biblical values the founders knew well. So, Corey, why don't you give us a little bit of info um, on the preamble? I would love to. And I'm so glad you brought up the Constitution Center because that is one of my favorite places and their program there is outstanding. I just get chills, maybe a few tears every time I watch it when this person comes out and begins with, we, the people. Who are we? What makes us a people? <laughs> every time I hear I we, the people, I'm not kidding. That starts going in my mind and I get yep. all the images. It's oh. just beautiful. I start shedding tears. Oh. It's just... It's just amazing. So yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there's more to the preamble than just we the people. But um, so what is the preamble? You might be asking yourself. Well, it's literally just them rambling at the, the beginning of the Constitution about why the Constitution. If, if you're familiar with writing a research paper, students, you know that every good research paper has a thesis statement. So you could argue that the preamble is, in essence, the thesis statement of our Constitution. Why do we have the Constitution? Why do we have government? What are these dudes doing in a hot room in Philadelphia? Well, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So right there at the beginning of our Constitution, we have the five reasons that um, our founding fathers believed government should exist? Why should we form a more perfect union? Um, establish justice to ensure domestic tranquility, et cetera, et cetera. And those five reasons we can all find in the word of God. So when you hear the phrase like, oh, America's a Christian nation, it's not because they all went to church and got baptized. It's not because they were all Christians or perfect human beings. It was because their ideas and their ideals um, were biblically based. They all came from a biblical worldview. And so, for example, we maybe spend we could spend weeks on this. Maybe we will. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but for the first example, the idea to you know for government to establish justice. Here's an example out of First Peter, in uh, chapter two, verse fourteen. Well, let's back up. We'll do. 13 as well. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's justice right there for you. And that, but that theme yeah. really is all through the word of God, this idea of justice to punish evil and to praise and reward those who do good. So that's just one example. Um, but we're going to continue this this idea of the Bible infused into our constitution and our original document is coming up, but we're going to take a quick break here. Am I right guys? Quick break. You are. Yeah, Corey, I just wanted to add really oh, yeah. quick, you know, I just, you know, we, we, and so the founders, and it's going to be uh, made more apparent to and evident as we talk more in future uh, episodes uh, about the founders, they knew their Bible. So, well, um, and they created a government that could imitate and reflect uh, these values, these uh, aspects of God. Uh, and by learning from God's word, uh, they gained and we gain the wisdom uh, that really created the longest continuously used constitution on the face of the earth. So we okay. see God's hand in it. Well, and there's two, I mean, even just to add on to that, Aaron, when you look at go, you know, 
what makes America great. And really, it goes back to the question of why the Constitution? Why should any of us care about this? Um, You know, a lot of times it's like, well, you know, Europe has a lot of great freedom ideas. The reality is, is that France has had several constitutions since their founding. There's been all these different um, constitutions where we have the oldest one. And like we talked about last week, we can change that with amendments. But the idea of going, as Americans, they knew their Bibles. These people who came out, they're people of the book. And today, according to a Barna Group study, there's only 8% of Americans who do read the Bible once a week. As Americans, we need to be encouraged to read our Bible. If we don't know the Bible, then really the Constitution, the Declaration, all of these different documents, the Founding Fathers seem quite annotated. But at the same point, as American Christians you know, maybe some of our, our listeners don't identify themselves as Christians, but just so, you know, if we're looking at that Christian, that Christian worldview, it is very important for us to realize if we don't understand the Bible, then we're not going to understand why the founders wrote the Bible. And I think, you know, it's an encouragement too of going, I think a lot of us are more familiar with the Bible than we even realize. You know, Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? You can hear that in the preamble, going back to even what Corey talked about with justice. That's a, you know, something we're familiar with. So like you guys said, it's going to be really fun moving forward, being able to unpack not only the preamble of the constitution in their physical forms, but the why behind it as well. And why does that matter to us. Yeah, great. Awesome, Krista. Yeah. And we were shaped. uh, And I like that word shaped, uh, because our country was shaped by the men, the founders. Um, The Bible shaped our constitution and shaped our nation. Uh, Not everybody was faithful. Not everybody was probably even a Christian. uh, But our, our country certainly was shaped by God's word. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and jump right into our mailbag here from our sponsor, American Christian Tour. So we have a lady here who just got back from tour and she says, our tour guide took us through Washington, D.C. with a story at each stop. When she told these stories, she made them come alive. I love that. Ashley, that's great to hear. Um, It's great to hear what actual people are saying about their tour and their experience. And um, we love to hear that these programs are helping to bring history to life for people. Like they're not just like history comes alive on these tours. So we know that acts and their tour guides work hard to make each stop special and teach our nation's history. Um, So thanks for sponsoring behind the tour, American Christian Tours. So remember last time we asked the question, what tradition established in Congress in 1787 is still practiced today? Every day Congress begins its session. So that was our question. So today we're going to answer that question for you guys um, with a surprising backstory to this tradition as well. So Aaron, why don't you start us off with this fascinating anecdote behind this current tradition of Congress? Yeah, thanks, Corey. Really pretty cool. Uh, we're talking about Benjamin Franklin today and Benjamin Franklin's role in uh, as a founder uh, of uh, some really amazing 
things uh, in our country. And he was at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 when 55 delegates came from the different colonies. They came together uh, and their focus was on the creation of a new government. And that new government really hung in the balance, you guys. So almost uh, after almost five weeks of really kind of intense study uh, and even debate, uh, the convention was at a standstill. And faced with uh, really the shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation, which had been written uh, about 10 years prior, uh, the, the delegates were really charged with trying to form a new government. And Benjamin Franklin was there. Uh, watching and listening and having his input. In our little nation, everyone was in danger of losing what it had fought so hard uh, to obtain uh, as a result of the Revolutionary War. But when there seemed to be no hope of finding an effective solution, uh, God worked and it was evident uh, because Benjamin Franklin stood up and he gave a speech. He said, hold on a second here. You know, what we need to do uh, of all this discord and all the, this, you know, the despair and different things that are going on right now, uh, we need to stop and pray. Um, and he, he said, hold, you know, let's, let's, let's all come together in prayer. So I'm not going to read his full quote, you guys, but I am going to give you uh, just a couple of uh, his quotes during that speech uh, that he gave. And uh, in times of trouble, uh, leaders have to choose whether they're going to uh, come before God uh, and depend on his providence and wisdom, or they're going to rely on themselves. And Benjamin Franklin, in, through his own words, were evidence that they were going to try and depend upon the Lord uh, and uh, what God was uh, leading them to do. Uh, so as a country struggling for wisdom in so many areas, uh, we can do well to remember um, Benjamin Franklin's quotes here. So the uh, first one, and Krista, maybe you can give a little bit of insight into this one too, but he, Benjamin Franklin said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Well, Aaron, like what I really catch out of that when I hear that is talking about the sparrow aspect, the sparrow. I think that that's a really interesting word that he used because as Christians and people who are familiar with a lot of, you know, the Bible, Jesus talks about the sparrow. He talks about, you know, this exact quote is from the Bible. And if you look in the entire, you know, if you go to the back of the Bible or, you know, do a Google search, whatever you do to find the word sparrow actually appears in the Bible several times. And so it's an interesting thing that, you know, we consider Benjamin Franklin, you know, the deist founding father, you know, he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in all this. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but just, I, I love that aspect of going a sparrow is a very specific term that as Christians, we would recognize instantly that he is using that from the Bible. Yeah, really good, Krista. Another quote that he had at the end um, of his speech, he says this, and again, this is in reference to his desire to have God direct this assembly. And um, 
he says this, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. And this was the beginning, you guys, of really the precedent of uh, an opening prayer in Congress, which is done to this day. You can hop on the, the, uh, a government site and even read the prayers, the opening prayers of the sessions from the past 10 years and probably even before. But here was a foundation. Here was a foundation by Benjamin Franklin that says, you know what, we need God's help to move forward. Which I think is a great point. And, you know, recognizing going, how does that apply to us today? I don't know if a lot of people would know this. I, when I read it, I was kind of shocked by it. But in 1982, there was a joint resolution by the House of Representatives in Congress. So our legislative branch, Article 1 of the Constitution, they came together and put a resolution that 1983 would be the year of the Bible. The reason why they did this was because they wanted to acknowledge the impact that the Bible had had on America past and present. And so when you look back, a lot of people say, well, the Bible was only applicable to the founding fathers. It didn't really have that much to do to them or to do with them, much less with us here in you know the 21st century. However, Congress acknowledges that. And could you imagine today Congress passing a bill like that? Um, it's pretty amazing going, this is not ancient history. This isn't even colonial history or early America. This is current history. I mean, this is, a you know, I, my siblings were born in the 1980s. I was born in the 1980s. You know, this is not that long ago, which, it, you know, acknowledges my old age, but that's okay too. I mean, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that you look and go, this is even Congress acknowledged the importance of the Bible. And like you said, the importance of prayer within that context, um, you know, to this day, every single time. Now, Corey, you've been in there several times when they've um, opened up with, with prayer, haven't you? And is it, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is it the same person every day or what, what has been your experience? No, there's been a different person. Um, I don't, I mean, sometimes it's the chaplain, obviously. And sometimes I'm trying to remember, I guess maybe members of Congress or volunteers, local pastors. Um, I just, I mean, it's 360, well, not that many days, but however many days Congress is in session, uh, it's a lot of people that get to pray for our nation in our nation's capital. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And sometimes I'll tell the group before, like, this is what you're going to see, but usually I don't because you never know what you're going to see in there. But you'll, (laughs) the prayer just, you're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? We can't even do this in public school. So it's shocking. Yeah. You guys, on April 9th uh, in 1789, also the the Constitutional Convention uh, implemented Benjamin Franklin's recommendation and appointed two paid chaplains. So pretty cool. Uh, One to the Senate and one to the House. And uh, this practice continues today as well. That's amazing. And what year was that? That was 1789? 1789, right. Wow. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, as we... (laughs) This is a, it's, it's a wonderful precedent, and especially by a man who's been criticized, um, you know, as being a, a so-called deist, and um, uh, there's a lot of different uh, opinions about him, but even from his own writings, uh, it was very evident that he knew God's word, right? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think of one quote that I love of his. He said, history will also afford frequent opportunities of showing the necessity of a public religion and the excellency of Christianity above all others, ancient and Mm -hmm. modern. And I think that it's amazing when you look at Benjamin Franklin, his life in general, it's such a, a complex issue when you look at his life, not just his beliefs, but really who he was. He was born in 1706. He lived very long. When he died, he was 84 years old. Now for us, I'm very grateful. I've had grandparents who've made it to 84 years old. I think that that's amazing. But the life expectancy back then was 35 years old. The amazingness of that of going, he wasn't just a, you know, a a very old man, he was a relic. I mean, that is very, very, he was far more than double the lifespan. And so his life is just amazing. He actually, uh, you know, as you guys are familiar with, he's had many, many different inventions and um, the kite experiment we're all familiar with. A lot of people think that's when he discovered electricity, but a lot of people know this, that electricity had been discovered many centuries before it was that he found that the lightning had electricity from that he mm-hmm. actually invented the lightning rods and if you've ever been to washington dc or if you're going with american christian tours you look up at the washington monument and it looks like it has a point at the very top well what you don't see because our eyes are not strong enough to see is that it has several lightning rods around the very tip because when they first put the Washington Monument together and put that tip on, it's aluminum up top and it says Laos Deo, praise be to God, praising the Lord at the very tallest point of our nation's capital. When they went up to inspect it about six months after it was completed in 18, yeah, 1884, they noticed that it was actually it was very much damaged from the, from the lightning. And so at that point they decided to put lightning rods up there all because of Benjamin Franklin. Um, you know, we're very familiar with a lot of his inventions. Yeah. I think good old Ben got lit up a couple times, didn't he? <laughs> I, think, I think there was a couple, he got, he got pretty close, but even then he survived, you know, that's pretty amazing. So, and not only just his inventions and who he was, but you know, you look at, what his accomplishments were. He was there to sign the Treaty of Paris in 1783, which ended the Revolutionary War. And really the fascination with that is in Yorktown, if you've been there in 1781, that's when the final battle took place, quote unquote. But it took two years for the really Britain to acknowledge that America was a nation, was really the significance with that. He assisted with writing the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Uh, He was a foreign minister to France, very, um, very active in going back and forth across the ocean in a perilous time, you know, to go and work on America's behalf. Uh, He just did an amazing, amazing thing. Like we've mentioned, his impact on the Constitution as well. So he had all these things, but this amazing life, but what, what did he believe? A lot of times when we think of Benjamin Franklin today, we go, he is a deist. And Corey, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, have you, what have you read that's kind of, you know, either supported that or, or showed, you know, that he actually was a Christian? Well, (laughs) this is a fun topic because it's so, um, well, 
It depends on, well, okay. So like the, the, the idea of deism, the idea that he is the, the eternal clockwinder, he, you know, created the world, set it in motion, created these natural laws to govern it and then step back and never had anything to do with it again, flies that definition of deism right there flies in the face of what Aaron just read about how God governs in the affairs of men. That is not a deist belief at all. But on the flip side, he also, he has such a, um, high regard for the Bible and Christian morals and this idea. And he, you know, he's, he'd had conversations and one of his ideas and ideals behind founding the university of Pennsylvania was to um, train up another generation based on the word of God, because he said, no, there's no better standard for society than um, these moralistic principles in the Bible. And so he had some interesting dialogues with different pastors and evangelists of the day who thought, well, that's, I love that you think that, but, and that's great. You should be governed by the word of God. But a lot of these more biblically minded people were like, well, but if that's all, you know, there's, there's more to the Bible than just morals. There's, you know, eternal salvation. as well. Yeah. Corey. And once, that. I, yeah. I remember once uh, in his, uh, in fact, I think it was in a speech and on more than one occasion, he had uh, references to the fact that human understanding was imperfect uh, and that a dependence upon mm -hmm. the Almighty uh, was was an important aspect of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and that too, yep. you look and go, so, and we talked about this last week, I think touched on Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus. That is the definition of what mm -hmm. being a Christian is. If you're looking right. at someone who went faithfully to church, who read their Bible, who knew the word inside out, uh, you know, who appealed to that in his professional life, he very mm -hmm. often talked about his Christian moral values. He would fit underneath that umbrella of being a Christian. And so it's one of those really tough things because I think that that's where a lot of Christians get, you know, kind of slipped up of going, well, he said this, he said that. And we have to go, first of all, to the original source, right? We have to read what did Benjamin Franklin say and what did he mean by that? He has his own um, pew. If you ever go to Philadelphia, there's one of the oldest churches in America is Christ Church. And he has his Franklin family pew there. Uh, you know, there's there are so many things that would cause me to question the result that people say that he wasn't a Christian. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And going, well, we're all making these arguments that he wasn't. Is that accurate that he wasn't a Christian? I mean, and again, it's just a, a conversation, you know, speculating. But I think that people are not looking at the line of evidence that was left by his life sometimes. Mm -hmm. and I would say if, if he is not a Christian by these standards, then look at the Christians in our country today. Like he, he, he can check, I don't want to say being a Christian is checking the boxes, but in so many ways he reflects the teachings of Jesus better than most Christians in our country today, you know, and the fact that he had high regard for the word of God and he can allude to it seamlessly in every speech he ever gives because he was so familiar with it. And yet how many Christians don't even pick up their Bible? You know, he had a high regard for the morals of Jesus and most Christians today have such an emphasis on liberty and freedom and greasy grace as you always call it. Christian. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. So, you know, and he has this idea that there was eternal, there was a, there was, there were consequences for actions and there was justice and there was um, this idea of moral, you know, rewards. Um, again, and that's why he thought it was such an ideal way to govern a society because 
that's going to keep you in check. You know, if you're not governed from without, or you're going to be governed with, or if you're not, if you're not governed from within, then you'll be, need to be governed from without. So. Yeah. And that's oh, a, yeah. that's a, that's a great thought, uh, Corey, because he's, he has another quote, um, that man will, he says, man will ultimately be governed, uh, by God or by tyrants. And, uh, mm-hmm. another quote that he gave almost right after that was freedom is not a gift bestowed upon us by other men, but a, uh, but a right that belongs to us by the laws of God and nature. And Krista, I love what you said earlier, because, uh, you know, he, like all of us that are human, um, we, we wrestle through uh, some of the things that uh, that we read um, uh, in history and even in God's word. Uh, and yet in God's sovereignty, he reveals to us uh, in his perfect timing exactly uh, what, what the truth is. So uh, Ben Franklin was one of those guys, super intelligent guy, uh, but I'm sure he, like Thomas Jefferson and others, had to wrestle through uh, some things um, about their faith. All right, well, today's historic figure is a man named George Whitfield from Gloucester, England. He was born in 1714. Um, and he you know, lived your average life, kind of a hooligan kid and all kinds of trouble. And whatnot, and then he wound up at Pembroke College, Oxford University. And if you Google Map Pembroke, like I did, um, you will discover that it's right across the street from Christchurch College, which is where two very famous brothers were attending school at the same time. And their names were Charles and John Wesley. And they started a little club where they would methodically gather and read the Bible and pray and read literature and just encourage and admonish and strengthen each other. And I don't know how, but George Whitfield found himself in the midst of this club that skeptics called the Holy Club. Um, and he, during that time, found Christ, like the Lord met him and transformed him. And he had a new a new life, a new birth. And it, it radically changed who he was and shaped the rest of his life. So he got his, um, he was ordained as an Anglican pastor um, from Oxford. And then he went on to preach. And then he went to America, where he went to Georgia. And he was struck by, um, his heart was like burdened for the orphans of Georgia and that just left an impression on his mind and heart for the rest of his life and so anyways that stuck with him and he dreamed of starting an orphanage in Georgia well he left Georgia went back to the UK and started preaching out in the open because his crowds became so large and it was a little bit crazy and people thought he was a little bit crazy but they came to hear him by the thousands all up and down England. Well, then he came back to America and started to do like a traveling preacher tour, an itinerant preacher thing. And his first stop was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the crowds gathered again by the thousands. And many times the crowds that would gather to hear him exceeded the population of the city itself. It's just mind-blowing. And he, um, I don't know, preached thousands and thousands of messages, hundreds and hundreds, you know, a year. Um, all the while, though, his health wasn't great. Like, he he just struggled on and persevered um, and only lived to be 55 years old. But all that while, he was just passionate about preaching the Word of God and seeing lives transformed. Well, his impact can never be really grasped, I think. I don't think you could ever overstate his impact on America. And one of the times he was preaching in Philadelphia, I had a famous man attend the service. 
named Benjamin Franklin, who came as somewhat of a skeptic and knew for sure this this man, George Whitfield, would ask him to like donate something. And throughout the course of the service, Ben Franklin, in his mind, slowly was giving more and more of his pocket change that. So by the end of the service, he completely emptied his pockets to this man's worthy cause, especially the orphanage. It's where a lot of the funds went. So that, st that started uh, a strange friendship between Whitfield and Franklin, which, as we've just learned, clearly had an impact on his view of morality and Christianity and the power of wow. prayer specifically to the fact that yeah, we're awesome. still praying in Congress today. So, I mean, again, you can't overestimate this, this man's impact. It's just it's overwhelming. Um, the orphanage was started. It still exists today. It's a boys' school called Bethesda down in Savannah, Georgia. Um, but again, it's, it was, he just was a part, a big part of what we call the Great Awakening. And so during that time period, men and women were coming to Christ by the thousands. And um, it, it, because of that, we'll get to this probably at some point more in depth, but that greatly impacted the, the founders and their ideals of freedom and liberty and how um, you know, that affects, it, come, it comes out of this biblical worldview and this Christianity. So there was one time, specific example of his impact. He was preaching in Philadelphia, and there was a little boy who was holding the lantern, like, for him, so he could presumably see his notes. Um, and this boy was so caught up in the message that he dropped the lantern and, like, huge crash, bang, boom, and, you know, quite a disturbance. And anyways, this little kid went on and never forgot that incident, never forgot that service, because during that service, like, the Lord just got hold of him and transformed his life, and he was later called to be a pastor himself, and it was hugely impacted in Virginia, impactful in Virginia and in New York City in the Presbyterian movement. Well, his path crossed with George Whitfield at one point, and he said, I don't know if you remember that little kid that broke the lantern, and Whitfield was like, you know what, I've often wondered about him, wondered where he went. And that man had the, the pleasure of telling him that he was that man. He was, he was in fact, um, John Rogers, like the famous past Presbyterian pastor. I know, crazy, crazy. So, I mean, it just brought him so much joy. And, you know, we may never see the fruits of our labors, but um, we're still reaping the fruits of, of George Whitfield's labors. And many people would say, like, why, why do you keep going? Why do you stop? Like, you, your health is so... Bad. Like you're barely able to stand, let alone, you know, travel like the way you do. Why don't you just, you know, you've done enough. You've reached thousands, millions. I don't know. And he said, no, I would rather, I would rather wear out than rust out. And I think that is so powerful, especially for a very passive American mindset of like, oh, I just, I'm going to serve God until I'm 60 or something and then I'll retire. <laughs> My dad is very quick to say that retirement isn't in the Bible. So yeah, I just take so much encouragement from that. I hope you guys listening um, are inspired just even a fraction by this man's legacy um, and his faithfulness and that we too can have that mindset of God, let me wear out rather than rust out um, for his purpose. I love that. Well, and the impact even that George Whitfield had on Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin spent 42 years in retirement. He was retired actually from his job in 1748, and his latter years were filled with all of those things we talked about. I mean, even right. the lightning with the key was 1752 after he quote unquote retired. Mm -hmm. Not saying anything against retirement by any means, but just I, I like that. Let us all wear out and mm -hmm. do the good work that God has called us to. 
And sometimes that's just being nice and reading. And I know um, we know one lady in particular who she's unable to move from her bed. And so she writes people and she talks with people. So whatever (laughs) God has called us to do, um, whether that's preach 18,000 sermons or drink 18,000 cups of coffee, I think that (laughs) whatever that call is Mm -hmm. that the Lord puts on us, that's an amazing, amazing call to action, Corey. Yeah. Yeah, really good, you guys. Well, as we search for wisdom today uh, to address the seemingly insurmountable problems that, uh, that which face our country and from without and, and within, uh, I think we do well uh, to heed Ben Franklin and, and George Whitfield's insights uh, on both uh, man's helplessness, our helplessness, uh, and more importantly, on the need for uh, the providential hand of God to guide us. We need him to guide us. Uh, they both correctly discerned that their generation was kind of groping in the dark to find truth uh, while not asking God to give them understanding. And I guess that's a question for all of us. Will we? Uh, will we ask God uh, to give us understanding like uh, George Whitfield and Ben Franklin? Well, you guys, next week we're going to continue this theme of behind the quote um, with uh, the question of what document almost 170 years older than the Constitution laid the foundation for our unique form of self-governance. So, Krista, Corey, um, you guys ready to depart? Never. (laughs) I'm never ready, but I think, I think it's time ready to, I know I can't even exactly. I can't wait for next week and see what we find out. Mm. Yeah. All right, everyone. We'll we'll look forward to spending time with you next week. Until then uh, we will uh, take you further uh, in the days ahead behind the tour. Bye. Bye guys. Bye.